grieving. Some families will be lost to one another forever. To those of you who face the difficulties of reconnecting with family and establishing ongoing relationships, we say sorry. We offer this apology in the hope that it will assist your healing and in order to shine a light on a dark period of our nation's history. To those who have fought for the truth to be heard, we hear you now. You're listening to Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Sparrow. This podcast is a production of Jigsaw Queensland Post-Adoption Support Service. However, the views expressed are those of the people participating, not necessarily Jigsaw Queensland. The podcast discusses adult themes and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Adopt Perspective. I'm your host, Joe Sparrow. Following on from our recent episode about trauma yoga, today we're exploring another therapeutic option for people affected by adoption. There's no one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to seeking help, and these episodes are more about investigating possible options rather than recommending anyone. Today we're discussing eye movement desensitization reprocessing, or as it is better known, thankfully, EMDR. I think I'll be sticking to that acronym today. (laughs) To help us with this overview, uh, we'll be talking to Fiona Mawson. Fiona is a counselling psychologist and registered and accredited EMDR consultant with the EMDR Association of Australia, and she has an EMDR-focused practice in Victoria. Fiona, welcome to Adopt Perspective, and thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise. Oh, look, thanks very much for um, inviting me and, and for your interest in EMDR. I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to be here and I'm really excited to be talking about EMDR and, and I'm hoping that your listeners will, will take away um, from, this, um, from this conversation and, and do their own research and explore whether it or not it's a, it's a good uh, therapy for them. So thanks yeah. for inviting me. You're welcome. Fiona, I recently read two analogies of EMD and DR. One was that it is using our brain to colour in an old memory. And the other is that it's like visiting the dentist who cleans out the decay in our tooth and then places a healthy filling in that spot. Is there any truth to these analogies and, and what exactly is EMDR? Well, I actually haven't heard those analogies. Um, and I think they're really, they're really interesting ones. Um, you know, I like to I like to think it um, a little bit differently to that, which is, you know, I, I think the the human body is is designed to heal. It it always wants to heal itself, and and sometimes it needs help, but for the most part, it wants to heal itself. And so, if um, you know, if we cut ourselves, the body's natural healing process will kick in. And, and the cells will do what it wants to do. And it's kind of the same with, with EMDR. It, it's both a physiological therapy and a psychological therapy. And because we know that memories are stored in the brain, um, in a particular part of the brain, then because the, the brain has stored the memory, 
and and it's disturbing then the 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 natural healing capacity of the brain is to want to heal that disturbance and that's why psychologically people seek therapy and that's why so um physiologically the brain also does its its thing to help to heal itself um so in terms of what is emdr let's let's do a little bit of a history walk because okay. I, I think that's really important sometimes. Yeah. So it was first developed in 1987 by Dr. Francine Shapiro. Now, Francine, um, she's late now. She passed away about three years ago. Um, what, what happened was she was walking in, in a park and she, she actually at that time had cancer. And she was walking in the park and she was feeling really disturbed about her, her, um, her, um, her uh, condition. And as she was walking she, and thinking, she noticed that her eyes were moving in a particular way. And she got really curious about that because she noticed that the disturbance in her body and her emotions about her, her condition reduced. And um, as a psychologist, we're, we're called um, scientific practitioners. And so we like to look at the science of what's happening um, in, the, in the human condition. So she went back and actually created a, a study uh, which was looking at how memories can be uh, the, the trauma or the dis disturbance in a memory can be reduced by using eye movements. And went on to, um, in 19, uh, 1987, I think it was, um, around that time, she, um, she did this study which was publish published and uh, it sort of gained traction from there. So that's kind of the, the history of, of EMDR and now it's been operating or it's been used as a, as a therapy for over 30 years and uh, it's very well uh, understood and researched and recognised and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that later. So let's tell you what EMDR is because it's, it's an interesting little therapy. Um, so um, it's, it's, first of all, it's person-centred which means that the therapist is really focused on what the, the client needs and is really empathetic to, to the goals and the, um, the things that the, the client wants to change. And as I said, it's both physiological and psychological. It has those two elements to it. So it incorporates eye movements and um, they can also be um, not only eye movements, it can also be uh, listening to tones on, mm. on earphones. Um, it can be butterfly hugs, which is where you tap. And if you can hear me tapping on my arms. And there's a, there's a thing called a light bar. So people can use a light bar, which moves left to right as a, as a light moving. And that helps the, the eyes to move left to right. And you can also use uh, the thing called uh, theratappers, which are like buzzers that you hold in your hands. And the person has this, this buzzing from one hand left to right as they think about the disturbing material. Mm -hmm. And we call all of that 
bilateral stimulation or BLS. And that's a key element to EMDR that puts it and makes it different to a lot of other therapies. So the, the therapy itself is really structured and systematic. It's very procedurally based and it has a, a, a set way of doing it, which is why the evidence for it, one of the reasons for why the evidence for it is growing, because it's rep replicable. And so we know that if we follow the procedure, we're going to get the best results for our clients. Whereas if we just do anything we like and just do um, eye movements, we may not get the best results. And what we believe is that the um, eye movement or the BLS, however that is, the tones or the, the tapping, it actually stimulates the neural pathways in the brain. And that's what helps the brain to heal itself. And, and we, we kind of know this because when we go to sleep at night and we sleep, we go into a particular sleep pattern called um, REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. And if you think about it, like you've got, I know you've got a lovely dog there. And you do. So I hope your <laughs> listeners don't mind me telling them that you have a lovely dog. They've heard him on quite a few occasions. Oh, <laughs> so... Uh, when you, when you notice your dog sleeping, you'll know that he's, he or she is dreaming when their eyes start flickering and you'll see their body twitching and, and you know, they'll be groaning and roughing and whatever it is that dogs do and talk in their sleep. It's the same for human beings. We all go into REM sleep and the brain naturally wants to process information. And, it, and, in, and when we're in REM sleep, what do our eyes move? That they move left and right and up and down. And we believe that that's the neural pathway being activated. And so that's why the eye movements are, are typically used for EMDR therapy. Um, yeah, just so that kind of goes into that a little bit. Um, yeah, so it's really about EMDR therapy is really about processing disturbing events that have been stored in the brain in a systematic and um, structured way to support clients so that they don't become overwhelmed when they when the emotional content of memories come up for processing. That is a fantastic explanation. Thank you so much for that. And I love how, um, now I've forgotten her name, but the lady that discovered it, you know, what a great lot of mindfulness that she had, you know, in that moment to notice what was happening and then thinking there's something to this and exploring it further. That, that's right. And it's, it's been a, the most wonderful gift, I believe, to, to, the whole, to the whole world because EMDR is used everywhere across the planet and it's used um, not just for post-traumatic stress disorder, which is what it was initially um, researched on, but a whole range of different uh, presentations that people have. And, um, you know, I won't certainly sit here and say it's been an easy journey because there was a lot of scepticism about EMDR in the, in the early days. And there was a lot of pushback by certain um, psychologists and researchers who have a particular passion about their own therapy. However, when the World Health Organization 
recognises it as a first-order treatment for, for PTSD, and it's in many different guidelines across the globe as a, as a recommended treatment, then those sorts of um, arguments um, really become a lot quieter. Yes, yeah, I imagine they do. So what got you interested in this area? That's a great question. So I, uh, there was, uh, and, and this is a bit of a confession. <laughs> Good, I like those. I'll lean in close. <laughs> just, just between the two of us. Okay. <laughs> so I, I as, a, as a psychologist, <coughs> excuse me, I, I, you know, I have uh, lots of complex clients sometimes. I'll just have a drink of water. Sure. And I, I had this one client who, I, you know, well, I love all my clients. You shouldn't love your clients, but I do. And, um, and, and I just felt like I was failing her because the, the therapy that I, that I was using, it just didn't seem to, to hit the mark. And I just felt there's something missing here. There's just something's not working. And that's what we do as, as scientists, scientific practitioners. We, 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 you know, we ask ourselves those questions. So I started looking for a therapy that I could try with her and learn in order to help her. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, gee, EMDR, never heard of that. I wonder what that is. Um, oh, wow, there's a training in New Zealand. I can go to New Zealand and learn EMDR and have a holiday. And so that's what I did. Yeah. And so that's what really got me interested. And, and after that, I just it just transformed my whole practice. Uh, I really became passionate and interested and researched and trained and trained and trained until I, um, you know, became a consultant. And so that was, you know, that was my journey, really. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, So what can you tell us then, I guess, about how trauma impacts the brain? And that's a really complicated question. And I'm definitely um, not a brain specialist. And I wish I was because I think that would be a really interesting skill, but I can only learn so much. (laughs) Um, But what I'll do is I'll just take you around the parts of the brain that we know are are impacted by trauma. And uh, those three parts of the brain are the amygdala, the prefrontal lobe and the hippocampus. And I'll just do a very general um, explanation of what they are and how how trauma impacts the brain um, in a a little bit. But before I do that, I really, I think I really want the listeners, your listeners to, to take on board that trauma doesn't just impact the brain. You know, trauma impacts the the social relationships that people have. Um, It it impacts um, self-identity. It it impacts on the core belief that people have about themselves in terms of, am I safe in the world? Is the world a safe place for me? And so although EMDR is very much a brain-based therapy it also looks at attachment and the attachment injuries that come from trauma and particularly for your your listeners um, through the adoption um, service 
I'm assuming that's what Jigsaw is. If that's wrong, I apologise. No, yeah, yeah, post-adoption support service, yeah. Thank you. I I did think so, but I wasn't sure. You know, is is that, um, you know, some of your your, um, members there or the people that come to you for help would know that they have experiences from their childhood or or that um, are impacting on them. And they have these core beliefs about themselves, as we all do. And those core beliefs create disturbances. And then those disturbances change how we, we react and we behave in relationships and at work and in, in all sorts of settings. So, you know, really, uh, when we talk about trauma impacting the brain, I like to really broaden that. It's not just about the brain. Yeah. But back to your question. So um, the amygdala, there's the three parts of the brain. The first part is the amygdala. Now, the amygdala is the emotional centre of the brain. And it's also the part of the brain that that responds to threat in the environment. It's called the fight-flight centre of the brain. And it kind of interprets the environment and then responds. And it's the heightened attention to the environment that leads people to be vigilant, to be anxious, to be worried, you know, to to jump if a door slams or to to be walking down the street and they might see someone and it reminds them of someone else that, that hurt them. And so the amygdala is the threat um, alert system. And we know for people that have been traumatised that the amygdala is often always switched on. And so that they're waiting for threats. They're waiting for things to be bad. And that's very exhausting for the the whole system as a a body because that impacts on the nervous system. So that's one of the things that happens with trauma on the brain. Um, The second area of the brain that gets impacted is the prefrontal lobe. And that's right at the, the start of the, at the top of the forehead here. If you touch the top of your forehead, you're touching your, your basically your prefrontal lobe. It's, it's called the medial prefrontal lobe, but that's just too complicated for me. And, and this is the part of the brain where you think and reason and coordinate and problem solve. And so what sometimes happens is that when the amygdala fires up, and is on alert, there's a whole lot of chemicals get released and that in effect shuts down the prefrontal lobe and our ability to think calmly and rationally and to problem solve. And and we know this happens. You know, everybody will know when they go to present um, at 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 a talk or for me when I came to talk to you this morning my amygdala was fired up and I was anxious and so my prefrontal lobe started to shut down and I thought I have my notes Fiona you're okay and so and so that's how trauma impacts the the relationship between those two parts of the brain And then the third part of the brain that gets impacted by trauma is the hippocampus. And it's involved, its function is learning and memory. And so what we know about the hippocampus is that when when a trauma event occurs, the hippocampus can store it in state-specific form because it's a really big event. 
So, you know, it, the, the hippocampus will store the, the image, the sound, the body sensation, the smell, the taste, and often the thought that goes with it. And, and it's that storing the memory in state-specific form that leads people to re-experience the trauma in everyday life because they're walking down the street and they see someone that reminds them of someone that hurt them. And straight away, because it's a learnt memory and it's stored, the hippocampus goes into fight, flight mode and then the prefrontal lobe shuts down and then all of a sudden the person doesn't understand why they're anxious, worried, and they just want to get out of, the, out of that environment. So that's, that's kind of my, my very basic un, sort of explanation. And, um, you know, but, but as I've said, the brain wants to heal. It really does. I 100% believe that. It just needs some support and some... Um, uh, some help to do that um, yeah so I hope that that was clear it is clear and I love that you um, that you say that, that the brain does want to heal itself and um, it's certainly been my experience sometimes you know it might go some odd ways about that but it is bringing back you know coping mechanisms or or you know its own attempts to heal so yeah that's fantastic it was a great explanation thank you oh my pleasure so then does EMDR erase memories? What does it do? Okay, that's a great question. Um, you know, it, it depends on the client. I've definitely had some clients where I've processed a memory with them and at the next week when they've come back and I've asked them to bring up the memory, they, they've said, Fiona, I know it happened. It's, it's a narrative, it's a story. I know, I know I was involved in a car accident when I was 10 years old, but it's like I don't have the state-specific knowledge of it. I, I can't bring up the image of the car anymore. I can't bring up the smell of the, the, the glass. I can't hear the sound of the car engine. And so for me, that's as close as you're going to get to an erased memory because we, we don't erase the facts of a person's life. There will always be a narrative that this happened and it happened to me, but I was whatever age I am. And, and that's, a, that's a great outcome for, the, for that client and for clients that have that experience. But more often than not, what the clients will report is I still have the memory but it doesn't disturb me. And not only does it not disturb me emotionally or psychologically, I no longer feel as though I have a negative belief about myself that's irrational. And, and, and we know that there are typically things that happen for children in particular. You know, the child comes home, gets a glass of milk, puts the glass of milk on the bench and then knocks it over. And mum, mum or dad's having a bad day, and you know gets out of their window of tolerance and yells at the child, you know, little Johnny or little Jane, how could you do that? You're just, you're just silly. You're clumsy and you're stupid. And so the child then says, "I'm stupid." And then that core belief gets embedded in the um, hippocampus and stored in memory in state-specific form and starts to have an underlying belief 
that starts to run as a pattern through the child's uh, life into their adulthood and they become sensitive to criticism and sensitive to doing things wrong. And so when we go back and process that memory, the child then has an adult perspective, which is, oh, I was just a kid. Kids are clumsy. And, you know, mum and dad, they were, they were pretty good people. They, they were, well, you know, they were just having a bad day. Um, and they, they did the best they could. And so that, that's kind of typically what can happen. And the other thing that typically can happen for memories is that they actually change. And so I've had people have a memory where they might have been trapped in a room and then when I process the memory or they process it, I just help them. The next week when they come back, they'll say, I'm not even in the room anymore. I'm on the beach. I'm having a great time. And that typically happens. Or the image changes. It's not in colour anymore. It's in black and white or it's distant or it's far away or it's in the past all sorts of interesting things happen because that's what the brain does. It wants to heal. It wants to, to, to grow, to progress, to change. It's incredible. Um, so that kind of leads me to something else. And I guess adoption affects many people, but for today's purposes, we'll focus on mothers and fathers who have lost children to adoption and adopted people um, who are you know, the people that we mostly um, assist through Jigsaw. Uh, for all parties, lack of memory can be an issue and for a multitude of reasons. It could be repressed memories or the influence of prescribed medications at the time it happened, um, to name only a couple. And for adopted people, the trauma of separation and adoption is even more complex as it was often pre-verbal. So there are, is literally no actual memory of the events. Um, so I guess I'm asking, what if someone doesn't have a memory of the traumatic, traumatic event? How can EMDR help? that's um you know that's really interesting um so from from a baby's perspective um actually before I start that I'll just I'll just share with your listeners um and as I shared with you Joe, which sort of you know really encouraged me to, to speak to Jigsaw was I have a family member who gave up a baby for adoption um many years ago and, and so I've sort of been journeying with that with my family member over that time. And so, you know, it's sort of I, I can see exactly what you're saying there from, from a lived experience. And, and, and so, um, so let, let's go back to your question. So for, let's look at a baby. So let's say a baby is born and then it's, it's, it's cared for in the, in the, initially in the hospital and there may have been some bonding uh, opportunity or may not have between the baby and, and the mother. And then the baby's given up for, for adoption. And as sometimes happens, they may go into, into a foster arrangement for a certain period of time or they may go straight to their, their new parent, their new mum and dad. Now, when the baby is first born, though, it has an experience of um, the birth mother or, you know, the biological mother, however, is the best term to use for, for that individual person. And, and that, that baby has an experience of the smell, the feel, the hold, 
the, the words, and they've been experienced all through the womb, all through the gestation period. And so, so what? So sometimes what can happen is when the baby gets, um, you know, given to a new loving family, it feels different. The smell is different. The hold is different. It, it, all sorts of things could be different. And so, so sometimes with clients that I've worked with that have had that experience, they don't have a verbal memory. They don't have a story. They only know that they were adopted as a child but that but for some not for all they have an underlying feeling or or a sense that something isn't right in themselves in their in their set their body sensations and so instead of processing a specific memory i make up a narrative about their adoption and then we focus on the sensation in the body and these are for pre-verbal traumas if it's a trauma, and um, and so we process the physical sensation, and often the person will just uh, naturally um, start to resolve and to consolidate that negative sensation and uh, negative core belief into something that's more adaptive and positive. Um, for other people who have specific memories then that's a, that's a different approach because you have a, a, a specific story, a beginning, a middle and an end and a negative belief, you know, and a disturbance, an emotional feeling. But often it's stored in a way that's really unhelpful with, it, with whatever the negative belief is. And so by processing it, um, no matter how long ago it happened, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, it, it, it makes no difference to the brain. It's stuck in that time, at that date. And so the person holds that memory at that time. And we, we just work with that. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. And it's a relief. It's a relief for someone to say, I've held this for 30 years. And, and now it just, it just doesn't disturb me. And I made the best decision I could at that time, and 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 I'm okay with that. It's you know it, it does for me. It doesn't get better than that in therapy. One of the things that stops people sometimes from seeking therapy is the thought that it's going to bring it all up, that it could be re-traumatizing. Um, yeah. What prevents EMDR from re-traumatizing some of your clients? And that's the reason why I, I why I went and took, I learned EMDR because I felt that the therapy that I was using was re-traumatizing them, and it was just too distressing. So a couple of things that are different between EMDR and something like trauma-focused CBT or or some of the other therapies is that it doesn't have a homework component. So we never ask the client to, after a therapy session to go home and think about it and to write about it and to talk to other people about it. We don't want them to do that. We want them to do the therapy in the room in a contained and supported way. The other thing that's not, re, not so re-traumatising is that we don't want to know the story necessarily as a therapist. 
I, I don't need the, the intimate details, which can often trigger shame. I don't want to know the intimate details, which can often be traumatising for me. And so we just want a little narrative, which might be when I was, when I was 15, I fell pregnant and I gave up a baby for adoption. And that's all I need. And then we just take an image of the worst moment, a picture in time, and then we start our, our assessment of that image and we process that and that's how we process the memory. And, and that's why I believe it's gentle, it's less traumatising and, um, and, you know, there's a lot of skills that go into helping people to, to not be overly distressed and outside a window of tolerance so that they can process it comfortably. But that's not to say it's not an easy therapy. People will get distressed and they will become emotionally upset. But that's not new information for them or experiences. They've had it all their life. But at the end of the session, nine times out of ten, they'll say, I haven't got that disturbance now. So how does EMDR um, differ to, say, hypnosis? Well, it's definitely not hypnosis. Um, hypnosis is where the client sits quite passively in a chair and the uh, hyp hypnotherapist uh, talks to the subconscious and uh, embeds sort of subconscious messages in the brain to help the brain to heal. E EMDR is really active. And so the client is asked through the phase three assessment to bring up the memory after, sorry, after phase three assessment when they're desensitizing the memory. They're actually asked to bring up the memory, notice the worst moment, and then you say, and now follow my hand. And with their eyes, they follow your hand. And when you finish after about 20 movements, you then ask the client, so what are you noticing? And then the client feeds back what they're noticing, and it could be anything, in the memory, out of the memory, an image, a sound, a body sensation. And then you just say, okay, notice that. And then off you go again with the eye movements. And so the, the, it's very different to hypnosis. It's very different to talking therapies where people just talk and then they talk and then the therapist says, oh, that must be terrible, and then they talk some more. And the therapist says, oh, you know, I'm really, I'm, I can really understand that. It's not like that. The client does the work and I just sit back and support them. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so what could somebody expect when um, they participate in EMDR, in EMDR therapy? All right, so the first thing that's going to happen is um, the clinician should explain what EMDR therapy is and some of the, the um, challenges and concerns that come up, particularly around you know, emotional disturbance and can the person tolerate emotional disturbance? And so we, we actually teach people how to do that with an EMDR te um, te technique to, to tolerate, to go into disturbance and out of disturbance. 
inter-disturbance and out-of-disturbance. So the first part is the psychoeducation. Then the second part is that we want to take a complete clinical landscape. We really want to know about this person's life story and we're really specific. Well, I am. So I will ask, tell me your 20 worst memories in your life. And if they if they sort of can't give that to me, I'll say, tell me about a dental appointment you had that was really bad. Have you ever had any operations, any car accidents, any natural disasters, floods, cyclones, bushfires? Um, the moment in your life where you felt most shameful, the worst Christmas, who, who in your family don't you like? Is there someone you feel really uncomfortable around? And then that gives us what's called a, a clinical landscape and a targeting sequence. And then once we've got that, we then sit down with the client and ask them, what are their goals in therapy? What's their, what, what, what are they presenting with? And they might say, oh, I can't, I can't get on public transport. And so we look at the memories that they've given us and I say, oh, when you were eight, you, 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 you got abused on a train. This is really typical for me. And they'll say, yeah. And I say, okay, well, let's process that memory. And so we then set up, in, uh, set up that, that target memory. We process it to adaptive resolution or where there's no disturbance. And then we look at has there been any change in the client's ability to travel on public transport? And we test it. You know, we, we do all sorts of things around making sure the treatment that we're providing is getting results. And we look at past memories, current triggers, and we want to do a future template, which is in the future, can you see yourself getting on a train and being really comfortable and, and not being worried about these thoughts of not feeling safe? And typically that's, um, that's, that, that just progresses through to however many sessions we have with the client. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so I guess yeah. then it can be done by somebody who's visually impaired like because there were the other options besides, you know, the eye movement as the bilateral. That's right. Yes, that's, yes. You're getting there. <laughs> I'm getting there. I could be an expert by the end of this. You're doing very well. That, that, look, I've had some trainees who, who can't remember bilateral. That's okay. <laughs> you just help them along and they do very well. Um, yeah, so if you're blind or if you're deaf, um, you can definitely do, BL, uh, do BLS and do EMDR therapy. And, um, and I, I guess the more complicated that those are actually quite easy, to be honest, but the more complicated client is those that might have high levels of dissociation. Mm. And so if you know that you are a person who dissociates in order to, to cope because it's a coping strategy, then, you know, my recommendation is to always find an accredited practitioner and preferably someone who's really had training in how to work with traumatised people with dissociation. Uh, because that's when it can be really um, challenging for the client if the therapist is is not as skillful as they as they really need to be for that client type. Yeah, just um, for our listeners, when you say disassociation, what do you mean? 
Oh, okay. So, so let's go back to how trauma impacts the brain. So the, the client has a, or the client, oh my goodness, Fiona, the person, the person has a trauma event and in order to survive, they, the brain, this is a survival strategy, the brain says, I don't want to remember that because if I remember that, and feel that and, and experience that, then I'm not going to survive and function. I have to get up and go to school tomorrow. I, I have to go to work. And so the, the brain in a very clever way separates the memory to an separates the memory out and represses it or blocks it. Yeah. And it's and 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 that's kind of like a, it dissociates it from the experience, the lived experience of the person. And so when we go into a trauma memory for processing, what do we want to do? We want that memory. And so you really need to be skillful that if your client has blocked a memory or repressed a memory. Um, that you know how to work with a client so that the part of them that did that isn't going to be cranky about it and they're not going to go and do other behaviours like drinking alcohol or gambling or self-harming because they don't want to feel that memory and my therapist wants me to. I don't want to feel that, so I'll go and do something to distract that's problematic. Yeah, and which I guess um, leads to the one of the questions I had, which was, is there any situations um, where EMDR might be ineffective or not suitable? So there, there definitely are situations where, where it shouldn't be jumped into quickly. And so you want to assess for drug and alcohol use, you know, people that are suicidal, you know, if someone's not in a stable um, home environment, if someone um, is um, in, a, in, psychos- in a psychotic episode, then for the average everyday sort of EMDR therapist, they would, you know, that they would need to do lots more preparation and stabilisation for that client. Yeah. For other therapists who might be more skillful, though, those sorts of um, um, comorbid, comorbid um, presentations or, or problematic behaviours can be worked with through other strategies and skills that the therapist will have so that we, we, we don't want to, to um, have the client revert to those problematic behaviours. But EMDR can be used for people in, in psychosis and um, for people using drugs and alcohol because there are protocols that are developed to support those presentations. Mm-hmm. Great. But they need to be skillful. The therapist needs to be skillful. Yeah. I guess, and that's one of the things, sometimes you might um, go to a therapist and it's not a good fit or it's, and so you have to be willing to not just necessarily give up on the whole idea of EMDR or whatever therapy, but maybe looking for a different person. That's right. And, and you can always um, try and find the right person by asking them about their training. Who, who did they train with and how many years have they been doing EMDR? And, you know, I've been told I, I dissociate. Can you work with me? 
if I dissociate. Or, you know, when I was a teenager, I used to self-harm to cope. You know, do you know how to work with that? And, and they're, they're great questions to ask any therapist, no matter what approach they're using. Yeah. So um, can, you know, with the pandemic, it's, it's greatly increased the number of people who are seeking mental health support just in general. Um, and it's also made face-to-face um, consultations harder at various times. Can EMDR be done virtually? Absolutely it can. Not a problem at all. Um, There are special sort of um, uh, considerations you have to take in place, though, and and put into place, like making sure that you've got good connectivity via the virtual medium, um, you know, that if the client is dysregulated, then there are there's a support network around them. You know, that there are things that the therapist has to do to make sure that online EMDR is um, safe for the client. And there's a whole lot of different ways to do EMDR. People have developed programs with a light, light ball that moves across the, the screen. Um, you know, put earphones on to listen to the audio BLS being delivered, or we do a thing called a butterfly hug that was developed um, by, uh, I think it was Harara Nacho, if that's right. If it's not, I apologise. <laughs> um, and, and that's a group-based protocol where for, for people, it was actually developed for children in a war zone where they would all come together, they would do this uh, tapping on the left and right arm, and that was how they applied the BLS in a group setting. And now, of course, we've, we've, we're using it for online EMDR. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so if any of our um, listeners are curious about EMDR therapy, where should they start? So the best place to go is to the EMDR Australia EMDR Association of Australia website, which is EMDRAA. Every registered EMDR therapist in Australia who wants to be is on that web page, and it lists whether they're a member, whether they're an accredited practitioner, or whether they're a consultant. And so it'll also list it by location. And so then what they would do is they would contact the practitioner by email and ask, have they got any capacity to see clients? Um, without, I'll be honest, a lot of EMDR therapists are, are really booked up and, and I myself have very limited capacity for new clients because I consult. Um, but sometimes if you... if this is my experience. If you write just a little story about yourself and the, the books are closed, then some therapists might say, oh, that's really interesting. I think I might, I might see what we can do with this client. <coughs> um, or the, the therapist will say, I'll put you on my wait list. Better to go on a wait list than not because eventually your name will come up. Um, that's just my, my experience. And so, yeah, so it's really hunting around and asking the question and trying to find the best fit. Yeah, thank you. 
Um, yeah, it's been my experience too, just um, booking for family members that have wanted to see different practitioners that if you go on the wait list, um, quite often I've been contacted really quickly after they've gone on the wait list and mm. been able to, you know, as long as I'm prepared to go in the next day or that day, um, we can yep. get in there really quickly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then, and then most therapists, once they have a client in their, you know, in their diary, you get regular. Yeah. You become regular. Yeah. It's just getting in the diary. That's the challenge. Yeah, definitely. Look, this has been an absolute amazing interview for me. You've been, um, you've been wonderful. I've, I really have, feel like that I have a great sense of EMDR now. So, thank you so much for your time and sharing your expertise with us today, Fiona. Um, is there anything that you would like us to know before we finish up today? Uh, only, I think the only thing I would like the listeners to know is that, um, you know, I, I really believe that we all have the capacity to heal and that we really, we really want to be the best selves that we can be and that, and, and that when we were, we were born as children, as, as little babies, you know, we had all these experiences in our life that that formed and developed us into the person that we are. They're learned experiences. They're stored in the memory banks. They're interpretations of life. And if we've learned something, then we can actually unlearn it. And so if we've learned uh, a particular belief about ourselves, we can unlearn it. And if we've got an emotional disturbance that is disturbing, well, then we, it means we've got an emotional feeling that's great and positive and loving and warm and comfortable. And so we can, we can help ourselves to move towards that experience and, and to bring um, joy and happiness to our lives. And, uh, you know, EMDR is not for everybody. It's just, it, it isn't, and it isn't for every presentation. Um, but if you, if you give it a go with the right fit and the right approach, then you may actually find um, some changes that will be quite delightful. Thank you. And we'll put up some of the relevant links um, on our podcast notes page, um, particularly the EMDRA website that um, Fiona mentioned. So be sure to check them out. In the meantime, do you have a story that you'd like to share with us? If so, jump onto the main podcast page of the Jigsaw Queensland website and complete the prospective guest that you formed that you will find there. And note that Adopt Perspective can be listened to by people all over the world. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Adopt Perspective podcast. If you'd like to find out more, go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll-free 1800 210313 or you can call Jigsaw on 07 double three five eight double six double six if you live in another state of australia you can still call the forced adoption support service number and your call will be answered by the forced adoption support service in the state that you're calling from in every other state relationships australia operates this service a big thank you to matt sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music until next time, I'm Joe Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Mm-hmm.